Uh, we're in the second week of talking about the five love languages. And um, this is just to sort of reiterate what I said last week, um, since I know there's probably people here that weren't here last week, is that the purpose of this is not to just slam on uh, resources that are out there and, and just you know sort of light them on fire and say not to... So this isn't just to, to, to slam on these resources or anything like that. It's, it, the purpose is that we might be thinking about uh, the things we talk about in this resource and that we talked about in Boundaries and to be considering just how these things apply as we're coming across other things and to be discerning and to have wisdom and to be evaluating things by the lens of the word and so that we are going to see deception. Remember last week we talked about the fact that if we if we want to know, if we want to recognize deception when it comes along, we need to know the truth so that we will recognize the deception. And so being in God's word on a regular basis and learning how to apply it in every way so that we will recognize things when they are false. So that's the idea here. So we're going to get uh, back into uh, the love languages this morning, and um, I'm going to hit a whole bunch of quotes here, and just so you guys can be thinking about what he's saying, and this isn't all bad. In fact, I'm going to quote quite a few things here that he actually says that are useful things, uh, but they are not the whole story of what the book's about either. So uh, it's not that these books don't have anything good in them, uh, even boundaries. I think Ron said a few things that were useful in there too. But the problem is, is that when we see these useful things, a lot of times we're, we're willing to just take it hook, line, and sinker and run with it with the whole argument that's being made. And that's what we don't want to do. We want to recognize things that are useful and maybe put those things into effect or think them through and think, okay, how can I use that? Uh, but we don't want to just, because they have a few good things to say, to buy the whole story, basically. So, um, and I'm going to get into, I, I told you there's a couple of really good reviews. I'll post the links to those uh, on the class resources. David Powelson had a great review of this book. I thought he was pretty fair. He slammed it pretty hard, but he was fair as well. Uh, and then Jim Neuheiser on the biblicalcounseling.com, there was a podcast with Jim Neuheiser, and he, he had a pretty fair assessment too, I, I thought. So I do have a few thoughts from them as well. So I'm going to start with a quote by David Powelson. He says, fallenness, so this is to keep in mind as we are thinking about the things that, the other things we're going to get into. Fallenness not only brings ignorance about how best to love others, it brings a perverse unwillingness and inability to love. It ingrains the perception that our lusts are in fact needs, empty places inside where others have disappointed us. The empty emotional tank construct is congenial to our fallen instincts, not transformative. It leaves, what we, it leaves what we instinctively want as an unquestionable good that must somehow be fulfilled. It not only leaves fundamental self-interest unchallenged, it plays to self-interest. So remember we talked last week about you know, finding your love language becomes an expectation. Because then you're, okay, my spouse is supposed to be loving me this way because they now know my love language, whatever I've told them that is or whatever I've demonstrated that is. And so now I'm expecting them, when we talked about expectations being a problem, um, is that that expectation now becomes that my, my spouse is going to love me that way. So he does have some good things to say. Uh, it's just that his overall view and point is limited at best. Uh, however, throughout the book, there are a few good bits of advice and observations 
that are sen- sensible, they, they are sensible and they're helpful, uh, I just wouldn't recommend the book because the overall picture is unbiblical in its concepts. David Powelson, uh, just talking about the language, the, the whole concept of languages itself, he says, it's good to know this about each other to act on it, sweetens relationships. So that's where we, we read about the love languages. It seems good. Okay, this person likes to be loved this way. This person, this is how they communicate or this is how they feel loved. Okay, well, to recognize those things and to make an, an unselfish, active effort to love them practically in those ways, that's a good thing. And it does sweeten relationships. So that's where we get the hook, right? That's where we're like, oh, that sounds good. Let's, let's keep on uh, getting into this. He also says the five languages aims to turn clueless people into helpful people, but it doesn't address shysters. So remember last week, I brought up the idea that, that there's some people, you know, the idea of giving to get, which is essentially what this is. You're giving in hopes of getting back. Well, there are people at what he would call the shysters, the people that are essentially what psychologists would call narcissists. They believe that everybody else should be doing what is pleasing to them. They should be receiving all the time, basically. Um, Those people are not going to be the kind of person that's going to fit into this idea, obviously, of getting back anything when you're giving. They're just going to keep taking. And I know of husbands like this. I know of husbands that have the the wife changes, the wife is serving, the wife is doing godly things, and the husband is just Taking it in with no change, no repentance, no, no, he's just this, this is the way it should be. I should be served. And so he just keeps taking it. And it's not just husbands. I'm sure there's wives. I'm just aware of husbands that have done that. We've been led to, this is a quote, and these are some of the, this, some relatively uh, decent things he's had to say. He says, we have been led to believe that if we are really in love, it will last forever. When it, meaning falling in love, which we would call infatuation, um, is reciprocal, we start talking about marriage because everyone agrees that being in love is the necessary foundation for a good marriage. He's making a good point. He's saying that this in love state that we get into, when we have all, all these emotions, we, we're attracted to somebody, we, all these emotions get going, and, and we're like, oh, I really want to be with this person all the time, and I want to hear from them, I want to write to them, I want to talk to them on the phone for hours. Do we talk on the phone for hours anymore? We want to text them for hours. Whatever, you, you're going to, you want to be around and communicate with this person all the time because you have these feelings, this infatuation with the person. But it's a, it's a good assessment. What he's saying is that that doesn't last for forever. There has to be something more. So he, I think he spends just about a whole chapter talking about this. And, you know, it's a reasonable assessment, what he's saying. People need to understand this, meaning our kids, you know, you guys are all married already, so you don't need to understand this now. You're already stuck, right? You're already in a marriage. You're already in what God has ordained for you to be in the marriage you're in. So... You don't need to remember this, but thinking about your kids coming up, and you can't wait until they're 18 or 16 to start ingraining this into them, okay? Uh, As parents, we need to be ready to explain this difference to our kids, that there's infatuation and there is true love. And training them to recognize and be attracted to godly character before allowing themselves to be influenced by other traits words, or actions. Infatuation makes it difficult to recognize the reality. 
once we get into that infatuation, once a, a child gets into that infatuation stage, your teenager, then trying to deal with it at that point is going to be very difficult because they can't see straight, just like you probably couldn't see straight when you were infatuated, right? So being mindful of that early on and ingraining in them the godly characteristics they're looking for. He says, unfortunately, the eternality of the in-love experience is fiction, not fact. Well, true statement, good, right? But then he goes on with some study about a psychologist about that, how, why this is true. So he goes on, you know, this psychologist did this study, and this is how we know that's true. Well, we, we don't need that, for one. Um, but this also seems like a perfect opportunity to, to discuss what God's Word says about marriage, but he doesn't. Now, remember, the reason that we are addressing the five love languages and not something else, like men are from Mars and women are from Venus or something like that, is that this book purports to be a Christian book, a Christian resource. And it also is sold in Christian bookstores, and there's churches that are recommending this book. So that's why we're talking about this book. And so when there's an opportunity like this to talk about the, the eternality of of love, the, the marriage covenant that is there, that, stick, that having bonds in marriage, the biblical design overall of marriage, when there's that opportunity to talk about that and he misses it and instead talks about what psychologists say, there's questions. Questions should be coming up in our head as to what he's talking about or why he's bringing this up. So he's, he describes the marriage as the, the honeymoon, or the marriage after the honeymoon phase, and he says, a world where routine and resentment can silently eat away at the love we once had. In this world, a look can hurt and a word can crush. Intimate lovers can become enemies and marriage a battlefield. So those are true things, and that sounds pretty depressing, right? Uh, but, you know, you can set your anxieties aside because... Understanding the love languages will save you from this horrible, marable state, and it's easy. And, you know, so Yvonne told me I was probably a little bit more sarcastic last week than I should have been. To be honest, it's really hard to read some of this stuff without sounding sarcastic. So I'm going to try really hard today to be sober in my speech. Um, but honestly, that is how this, this book comes across. You have these problems, learn the love languages, Learn your spouse's love language, put it into action, and it's all going to be fixed, and it's easy, essentially, is how it comes across in the book. Now, he does get some doctrine right, too. He says, by nature, we are egocentric. Our world revolves around us. And then he also says, so that's a good statement, but then he says, well, uh, next page, I need to be loved by someone who chooses to love me. Well, is this true? Do we need to be loved by anyone other than God? Well, it sounds right, but it's, is it possible to live in a marriage or any other relationship where love is not reciprocated uh, and still glorify God in that? Well, the glory of God is not an issue with him at all. He's not concerned about it. That's not his concern at all. He, he doesn't reference that at all in his book. But is it possible to live where love is not reciprocated and still glorify God? Of course it is. And many people do it. Does God provide strength and perseverance in those situations? Of course He does. And He's ordained that that situation has come about. But that, those kind of things are not addressed in here. 
Chapman appeals to research, not scripture, to make the point that sticking with a marriage after the in-love experience is worn off. So I told you he uses a psychology study. He's, so he goes to research and says, well, you need to stick to your marriage because research says, you know, those kind of things. He says, real love unites reason and emotion. It involves an act of the will and requires discipline. So far, so good, right? It unites reason and emotion. It involves an act of the will and requires discipline. That's what real love is. But then he says, our most basic emotional need is not to fall in love, but to be genuinely loved by another, to know love that grows out of reason and choice, not instinct. So, so I want you to hear there that we're reading bits of truth along the way that agree with Scripture. But just as in a lot of other re- similar resources, and this is what we're trying to, to talk about, is the whole, the argument is ultimately self not others focused. And so there's a lot of bits of truth that even stuff that's, that, that aligns with Scripture. But the whole of the, the story is not true to Scripture. It says, the emotional need for love must be met if we are to have emotional health. In other words, he's saying, without love from others, particularly our spouse, we cannot be emotionally healthy. We can't be all that God would have us to be. That's essentially what he's saying, is that we are going to miss what God would have us to be if our spouse does not love us rightly. We need to meet that emotional need of being loved in order for that to happen. So he says, the, in the textbook of marriage, if, he talks about infatuation, is but the introduction, the heart of the book is rational, volitional love. That is the kind of love to which the sages have always called us. It is intentional. Okay, so, you know, you read that sentence and you think, okay, well, there's no big deal about that. But sort of tearing it apart, in the textbook of marriage, if infatuation, what he calls being in love, is but the introduction, the heart of the book is rational, volitional. So the the main part of the textbook of marriage is rational, volitional love. And that's the kind of love to which the sages have always called us. It's intentional. So when I read that sentence anyway, I start asking questions like, what textbook of marriage is he referring to? Um, He could be referring to Scripture, but we don't know because he's not saying that. Uh, He could be referring to the Song of Solomon. He could be making a point about the timing of these loving estates. So just as sort of euphemistically saying the textbook of love and the way things work kind of thing, he could be saying it that way. Um, however, he refers to the sages, is, and is he referring to the biblical authors when he says the sages? Or who else is he referring to? If so, as a Christian writer, should, if he's going to label himself as a Christian writer, shouldn't he be referring directly to Scripture and God himself, not the penmen of the Scripture as sages? So if he's talking about the, the authors of Scripture, they're not sages. They are penmen that... The, those authors are not the author. They're not, they were writing what God would have them to write. They're not sages. It's not their wisdom that we care about. It's what God wrote through them. Therefore, there's no point in attributing any wisdom to them. If he's referring to authors other than Scripture, basically those are unauthoritative and we can dismiss them. They don't, they're not necessary. Um, and these, are, these quotes that I'm giving you are not spread out through the book. This is like page after page, essentially. I'm pretty much one quote, the next page, another quote kind of thing. And, so, and as, as Ron did, 
If you guys want to read it and think I'm, you know, if you think I'm taking it out of context or I might be doing that, then go ahead and look at it. Go ahead and read it, and, and that's fine. I'll be happy to discuss it with you. He um, says, when your spouse's love tank is full and he feels secure in your love, the whole world looks bright and your spouse will move out to reach his highest potential in life. But when the love tank is empty and he feels used but not loved, the whole world looks dark and he will likely never reach his potential for good in the world. Again, it's up to us to make it possible for our spouse to reach their potential in the world. Can we help them do that by being loving and encouraging? Of course we can. But are we the determining factor whether that happens or not? No, we're not. He makes the case that we hold in our hands the destiny of our spouses. We're the ones who make it possible for them to thrive. And by extension, by extension, think it through. If we don't get that love from our spouses, we are not likely to reach our own potential. So we're not just thinking about the potential we're giving to our spouse. We're also thinking, you know, by extension, we're thinking, wow, if my spouse doesn't love me the way, you know, meet my love languages, then I, my potential is lost, right? I mean, that's what he's saying, essentially. But this is a great setup to introduce the answer that he has in the book. That's the love languages. So essentially, he's setting up the love, you know, you need to do the love languages, essentially. Now, we won't spend, uh, any of you that were hoping that we were going to talk a long time about your love language or whichever you would label yourself love language, I'm sorry, we're not going to deal with any of the languages individually at all. Uh, because honestly, they just don't matter. I mean, they, what the, you guys named them all last week, which I was quite amazed at, actually. <laughs> um, but they, they just don't matter when you're examining the entirety of his philosophy. So I'm, I'm going to pull things out from as he's talking about the love languages, but we're not going to deal with them individually. Uh, he says, we must learn what is important to our spouse. Only then can we give encouragement. So learning what's important, we, we can only give encouragement to our spouse only if we first learn what's important to them. Is that scriptural? I mean, Ephesians 4.29 tells us to speak words that edify and give grace to those who hear. What's important as we read throughout the New Testament is becoming like Christ and growing to maturity as believers. It's not what's important to them. What's important to them ought to be being like Christ. And if it's not, we ought to be evangelizing them to that, that end. That's what's best for our spouse and doesn't require learning what's important to them. So here's another good quote he had. Forgiveness is not a feeling, it's a commitment. It's a choice to show mercy, not to hold the offense up against the offender. Forgiveness is an expression of love. Yes, I would fully agree with that. I would fully agree with what he says there. He says, he goes on, he says, you may also try your hand at writing words of affirmation. So he's talking about words of affirmation as one of the languages. He says, you may also try your hand at writing words of affirmation. Written words have the benefit of being read over and over again. Is that true and is that good? Yeah, that is a great, this is the type of thing that I'm saying as far as a practical thing to put into to play and to, to put into practice and to think through and go, wow, would that, would that be good for me to do? Well, of course it would. So if, you know, putting things into writing, so that, I mean, you know, talk about throughout the ages, we've had love letters going back and forth. We have got a lot of them from way, 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 way long history that have been saved you know, they last because somebody can read them again. And that's a good thing. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of spouses would really be encouraged by that. 
says, learning to listen may be as difficult as learning a foreign language. Now, I don't know if you guys, I don't know if that sounded as extreme to you guys as it did to me, but that, that sounds pretty extreme. And it may just be because I'm slow at learning foreign, langu- foreign languages probably, but learning to listen may be as difficult as learning a foreign language. So uh, he does give some tips on listening, which I appreciated. They actually were pretty good, what he had to say. Not like learning a foreign language, but they were good tips. And we've talked about listening in this class, and there's lots of things to be learned and to be intentional about when we are listening to our spouse. We don't always listen effectively or rightly automatically. We need to be intentional about it. We need to be thinking about how we're listening. And listening sometimes is work, not because our spouse is difficult to listen to, but just because we're not accustomed to listening or we're busy and we got all kinds of other distractions. We need to focus on what's going on in the moment. So he actually gives some action points on listening. And I like this. He says, research, research has indicated that the average individual listens for only 17 seconds before interrupting and interjecting his own ideas. Now, I don't know about the research, and I hope that's not the case in this class, that you guys go a little further than 17 seconds before you interrupt. But interrupting to me is one of those things that you... You talk to people and they interrupt, and especially when you see a husband and spouse or a husband and wife that are having difficulties and they interrupt each other all the time, major, major problem, okay? <laughs> interrupt. If you're, inter- if you're an interrupter, stop it, as the immortal Bob Newhart would say. <laughs> stop it. Just don't do it anymore. Just let them say what they're going to say and then respond and listen while they are talking. Okay, so that's, that's good. Uh, it says, after a long, and then after a long explanation of how our childhood determines our destiny, which we talked about last week, he's big into the childhood thing, just like they were in Boundaries. We are, he says, we are no longer in touch with our emotional selves. A few sentences later, the place to begin is by getting in touch with feelings. Now, another resource, remember Ron talked about feelings and faith, or faith and feelings, was Borgman, Brian Borgman. Um, better resource to go to about feelings, but... But we need to get in touch with our feelings. Now, he gives this suggestion, and I'm going to try and read this in a non-sarcastic, sober way. Regarding learning quality conversation, he says, begin by noting the emotions you feel away from home. Carry a small notepad and keep it with you daily. Three times each day, ask yourself, what emotions have I felt in the last three hours? Do that exercise three times a day, and you will develop an awareness of your emotional nature. Okay, so is there anything wrong with that suggestion? Uh, not really, I guess, but um, and maybe everybody's different than I am, but there is no way I am going to be <laughs> doing that three times a day. I mean, I just I can't even see anybody doing that, but I guess it, it's not a bad suggestion. <laughs> um, okay, so anyway, moving on. Um, And then he goes on to say, establish a daily sharing time in which each of you will talk about three things that happened to you that day and how you feel about them. I call that the minimum daily requirement for a healthy marriage. So the minimum healthy, the minimum daily requirement for a healthy marriage for him is couples sitting down every day and talking about three things that happened that day and what they felt about it. Okay. Now, is this always going to be God-honoring way of discussing, like having that discussion with one another. Well, 
Uh, maybe after some instruction on how to biblically consider what happens to you and how you should feel about it and what you th- think about it, which he doesn't do in the book, talk about any of that, uh, then you might be use- it might be useful conversation and encouraging to one another. But apart from that, our normal talk, if you're just going to talk about how you feel about things, that could really turn into a not good situation if we're just talking about how we... If we're talking about how we responded sinfully to something and we need to correct that, then yes, that would be good. Uh, or if we had joy in this and we were thankful for what God provided in this and that God was providing this slow driver in front of me today and I was so thankful to learn patience. You know, what, those kind of things, uh, that's good. But that's not what he is encouraging here. Now, having a regular time together and even scheduling it, is that a good idea? Yes, it is. We've talked about that in this class, that if you are overwhelmed with other things, that not spending time together is not a good plan for marriage. Um, you need to be spending time together. So that is a good suggestion overall. He finishes the chapter with a good question. He says, what in your marriage detracts from spending quality time? Well, we need to be, what is it? What is it that is distracting you and detracting you from spending quality time together? Well, whatever that is, you need to start thinking about whether you can get rid of it because not spending quality time together is not a good way for a marriage to develop and to have a good relationship. Okay, so he gives another decent suggestion. Uh, Give your spouse a book on a topic of his or her interest and offer to also read it and review a chapter a week together. So in this case, Rachel would go to Ron and she would say, I'm thinking about reading this book on gardens, and uh, I know you like gardens, so we're going to discuss this every week. And if Yvonne did it to me, she'd say, I, I know you like old cars, so I'm going to get this book. See, the reality of that happening is not going to, that's not going but, to, but that's the idea, is that you're showing some interest in what they're interested in, and maybe even trying to get interested in it. You know, like maybe even saying, hey, there might be something interesting here, and we can relate in this way. Not a bad idea, really. Now, if you were to uh, take a book that is something biblical that has been recommended and you know that your spouse is already starting to read it and you say, hey, I'm going to read that too so we can discuss it. Wouldn't that be a great thing to be able to spend that time? So that's not a bad, not a bad suggestion at all. Um, okay, so he tells, he tells a story of how he, early in his studies to become a counselor or a therapist really, Help the couple think through some marriage difficulties after church. So this couple after church, they come up to me and they say, hey, we, we heard that you're studying counseling. Are you starting to be a counselor? We have this thing going on, whatever it was. And he helps them out with whatever it was, some practical list making or something. And his conclusion was, I think this is what church is all about. I think this is what church is all about, is essentially helping married people with their problems in a very practical way, not a spiritual way, but in a practical way. So... No mention of sin, pleasing God, applying His Word, fellowship, all those things that we would think of as what church, you know, coming to church would be, or what the church itself would be, that we encourage one another, that we exhort one another, we challenge one another. Um, Another good sentence, criticism and demands tend to drive wedges, of course. Um, So then he's, he's going into talking about physical touch. He says, physical abuse is always wrong and detrimental to any relationship, but it is particularly devastating to a person whose primary love language is touch. So he's saying that if that person's primary love language is touched, then if they're getting abused, then it's particularly bad for that person. Okay, well, I I get what he's saying, but is that a necessary assumption? Is that an absolute statement? Is it building the case for the truth of 
another love language. Yes, it is. That's why he's making the statement, is to try and get you bought into the love language thing. Okay, so, uh, running out of time. So, um, if, he, this, uh, another quote, he says, if sexual intercourse is your mate's primary dialect, reading about and discussing the art of sexual lovemaking will enhance your experience of love. Okay, I hope you heard problems in that. Why is this a problem? Well, for one, sex is not a language dialect. It is a biblically commanded aspect of marriage alone. To call it a language dialect, especially after saying that our childhood makes us who we are, communicates that a person is always that language, which makes no sense. Because he makes the case that your love language is established when you're a child. So then if he's saying now that if sex is your love language or your dialect of your love language, it doesn't make any sense. Um, and if you need a review on the topic of sex being a biblically commanded aspect of marriage alone, Chris preached several sermons in 1 Corinthians on chapter 6 and 7, which you can get on the website or YouTube or wherever you listen to past messages. Uh, for a husband and wife to mutually please one another sexually is pleasing to God and honors Him. Chapman does say in, in there, he said that you're going to read and discuss. So he did say and discuss. And that's what so much of this comes down to in this book is the communication part of it, talking about things. I mean, that is the value, in my opinion, the value that you can get out of the love language concept is that you're discussing everything. You're discussing how you feel loved and how the other person feels. Those, it doesn't need to be love languages, but discussing things needs to happen. We need to be communicating, and that's, that is something that he grabs a hold of that I think is good, is that we need to be communicating about these things, and oftentimes people are not. Um, so that may be one of the most useful things about the book. Now, I did tell you last week, Strengthening Your Marriage, Wayne Mack, this has got a way better uh, communication part in it. So if you're looking to talk about communication or study that in marriage, this is a way better resource for that, um, which I couldn't remember that last week, um, why I brought that book. Um, Okay, so, of course, when a husband or wife labels himself or herself as a primary dialect sex love language receiver, what happens? Well, that person starts believing that if their spouse really loves them, they ought to have sex more often for that reason. Um, Chapman actually makes the case that not filling a spouse's love tank by communicating their love language is a driver for relational separation, divorce, and adultery. This is where, so, so far... There's been some good things, and it hasn't been too far. I mean, it's been off base, but there's some things towards the end of the book that are pretty off. Um, and this is one of them in that he makes the case, or he makes, I understand what he's saying, and there's some truth to it, but he's not dealing with the sin aspect of it at all. He's not dealing with pleasing God in marriage. Um, so David Pallison says about this, he says, does having an empty love tank cause you to mistreat others? Because that's essentially his case, is that if somebody's love language isn't being spoken to them enough that their love tank is filled, then that's going to drive them to misbehave, to not be kind, to, to not deal with you rightly. But if it is, then they're going to respond accordingly. Well, the answer, of course, to 
you know, does it cause us to mistreat others? Chris read it this morning, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God's going to give you the way out. So we don't have excuse to say, my love tank's not full, so therefore I'm not going to treat you rightly. We are called to love and to love our enemies. And if we feel like our spouse is our enemy, we're still called to love them. He never addresses adultery or divorce as sinful, just as bad outcomes from not speaking the right love languages and failing to fill love tanks. And honestly, this is a bad problem out there because people are not thinking about divorce biblically, and they're not thinking about adultery biblically, even in the churches. Um, You know, the no-fault divorce thing, we're just not getting along. We We weren't supposed to be together in the first place. They're not my true soulmate. Whatever, getting divorces is unbiblical and unpleasing to God, but he never, he never addresses it that way. Um, so back on the uh, study, still on the studying sex resources, so you can discuss them. Uh, for a secular therapist to suggest married people go looking for information about sex on the internet or in books or whatever, for a secular therapist to do that would make sense, okay? Um, for a therapist who claims Christ to suggest people go looking for information on sex, without giving warning and direction, is irresponsible. I mean, for him to say, go find information about sex, that's irresponsible. I can't imagine Chris or any other biblically grounded shepherd or person of influence giving an open-ended suggestion to look for reading or other material on the art of sexual lovemaking, which is what he said. I mean, I I can't even... Why would you do that as a believer? So, if you want direction, and if you want guidance on this. The only resources I know that I would recommend are Intended for Pleasure, which is written by a Christian physician and his wife, Ed Wheat, and his wife, Gay, and or Sex and the Supremacy of Christ, which is multiple authors, but it's edited by John Piper, and you can get it for free at DesiringGod.org, and I will include the link to get that in the notes as well. Two great resources. Ron, do you know of any others? Mm, No. Okay, yeah. Um, all right, so I want to skip to the end here, so I'm making sure there's nothing important I want to hit first. If two languages seem to, this is this is going to intentionally come out sarcastic. If two languages seem to be equal for you, that is, both speak loudly to you, then perhaps you are bilingual. Um, Oh, so he gives, he gives a case study of a man whose love tank wasn't filled by his wife. This guy leaves his wife for his mistress, who eventually decided the infatuation had worn off, and she leaves him. So he goes back to his wife, and of course they see Gary Chapman, and he can help them. Uh, they figured out their love languages, so his love tank could be filled, which is why he ran off with the other girl, because his love tank wasn't filled. Uh, and then they lived happily ever after. Uh, Chapman seems, but in doing that, in telling that story, because that man's love tank wasn't filled, he went off with his mistress. Essentially, Chapman seems to be trying to evoke sympathy for that guy because his love tank wasn't filled and doesn't address the sinfulness of his adultery at all. So these are the things that like start screaming out towards the end of the book. Um, 
Chapman describes his own sacrificial love for his wife. I vacuum our house now, and I vacuum it regularly. You couldn't pay me enough to vacuum my house, but I do it for love. My wife knows that when I vacuum the house, it's nothing but 100% pure, unadulterated love, and I get credit for the whole thing. Um, He does, he does like uh, assigning, making lists, which is actually a very common thing for biblical counselors to do, um, which is good. And he actually starts off with some pretty good lists. What are you thankful for? What are the things that you can praise your... What are things that you think your spouse would like or that you could practically... He has a lot of really good lists that he asks uh, them to write. So he, he does a, pr- a pretty good job. Uh, he's Early on, he was on a, good, on a good track there. But then towards the end of the book, he has this woman make a list of all her complaints about her husband and to bring them in. So what is wrong with that picture? 1 Corinthians 13, make no record of wrongs, right? So he's, encru- he's encouraging her, make a record of wrongs. Um, so in that same narrative, the wife essentially starts doing everything the husband wants uh, because Gary Chapman advised her to do so. So to love him practically, but essentially just giving him what he wants, right? Um, So his conclusion of the story is, Glenn never came in for counseling, her husband, but he did listen to some of my CDs and discuss them with Anne. He encouraged Anne to continue her counseling. Well, of course he did because he was telling her to do everything he wanted, which she did for another three months. To this day, Glenn swears to his friends, I am a miracle worker. Okay, so what what was missing in that? I don't think I cut anything out. Um, what was missing? I can tell you what was missing in that narrative. The man had no repentance, and no, there's nothing listed in there about him changing or anything. It's just she came to counseling, she started doing what he wanted and loving him practically, and the result was Gary Chapman's a miracle worker. That, that's essentially how that came out, how that comes out in the book. Okay, um, as your marriage begins to truly heal and grow deeper, make sure you don't forget your spouse's love language and daily needs. You're on the road to your dreams, so stay there. Um, the ability to love, especially when your spouse is not loving you, may seem impossible for some. Such love may require us to draw upon our spiritual resources. You think? Maybe. Maybe. But that's as much as he says about it. He doesn't go on and explain or anything. It's just that. Um, What if I... He's got a question and answer at the end. Um, What if I speak my wife's love language and she doesn't respond? Um, Essentially, his answer is, you have made the wrong assumption about what her love language is. Number one answer. Number two answer is... You haven't been speaking her language long enough that now she has a new lover, physical or emotional, and she thinks you are trying to manipulate her. But you can still love her anyway, and if she leaves you, you will know that she is leaving someone who loved her unconditionally. So, of course, it's not unconditional because the real purpose is to get something back. Unconditional love would be for the purpose of glorifying God and helping the other to be like Christ. That's not what he's talking about. Um, Ultimately, throughout the book, it seems that Chapman does not understand biblical love at all. Or at least if he does, he's not addressing it in this book. So why is this book popular? Well, it's relatable. We can see, okay, this, make, this seems to make sense. Okay, my spouse wants to be loved differently than I want to be loved. It seems to make sense. And as I said, there are some 
reasonable things in the book that he says. Uh, he never actually uses the um, he never uses Philippians 2 regarding others is more important than yourself. He never uses 1 Peter 3, 7 about men living in an understanding way with their wives. you think those would be two naturals that would come out somewhere, right? Uh, but he never uses those scriptures or hardly any scripture at all. And when, some of them he uses incorrectly when he does use them. Um, it has ounces of truth mixed into an overall unnecessary scheme of loving uh, that doesn't address loving biblically or sacrificially at all. Okay, so now I've got a few quotes I wanted to make sure I hit, so bear with me here. David Pallison says, Chapman's reasons, only because I want you to hear what these better-thinking guys than me have to say about this. Uh, David Pallison says, Chapman's reasons for giving accurate love to others, his explanation of what speaking another's love language does, his ultimate goal in marriage, and his evaluation of the significance of love languages are deplorable. (laughs) Remember, he started out being sort of charitable about sort of like, this is, there are some good things about this book, but, but when he starts coming down to his real evaluation, this is what he has to say, is that it's depl- the whole thing is deplorable, essentially, as far as the concepts. He also says Chapman's model is premised on a give-to-get economy. You guys can hear that, right? You give love language, you, you, you love them in their love language, they're going to do it back. Um, he also says the book does slightly after... He does slightly alter this, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, calculus. It is a glorified version, taking a small step in the right direction by reversing the order. I scratch your back, and then it's likely you'll scratch mine. Chapman's full working philosophy might be summarized this way. So this is the summary, this is David Pallison's summary of the book. I'll find out where you itch, and I'll scratch your back so you feel better. Along the way, I'll let you know my itches in a non-demanding manner. You feel good about me because your itches are being scratched, so eventually you'll probably scratch my back too. Chapman softens the demand and encourages unilateral initiative, but everything is still hitched to fundamental self-interest. So you guys could hear that. I mean, I'm going to scratch your back in hopes that you're going to do, you're going to scratch mine. And finally, on David Pallison, unwittingly, he exalts the observation that even tax collectors, Gentiles, and sinners love those who love them. So in other words, no repentance, no change, no trusting in Christ, no doing what Christ what would please him, just rolling with the observation that tax collectors, Gentiles, and sinners love those who love them. So he essentially glorifies that in the book. Um, nothing about change and conformity to God's will, certainly not conformity to God's will for marriages. Now, Jim Neuheiser, a couple quotes from him. He says, his authority is basically experience rather than the Bible. And we heard that. I mean, he's not using scripture. He's using experience, Right. Uh, when the Bible is referenced, it's used very vaguely and moralistically, not in a gospel-centered way, but not in an authoritative way. His goal, which is, the one, of the big, is one of the big problems of the book, rather than whether alive or dead, our, glory, our goal is to glorify God, 2 Corinthians 5.9. The primary goal is human happiness. So the goal is in this is that you have a happy marriage. It's not that you please God at all. It's just that you have a happy marriage. Uh, it's man-centered as opposed to God-centered. His understanding of human nature is also primarily from a psychological perspective. Uh, while not referring, and this is something I wrote, while not referring to Scripture as an authority, he does refer to psychologists very often in the book. Psychologists say this and that kind of thing. Um, and oftentimes they completely contradict Scripture. Um, Lastly, uh, Jim Neuheiser says, I think, in, I think another concern would be that I think it can have a backward effect on some marriages where a spouse gets the idea 
Well, I need someone who connects in quality time, and my spouse is an engineer, sorry engineers, uh, who isn't good at quality time. Therefore, my situation is hopeless. So you, somebody could look at it and say, my spouse just doesn't do those things that I feel loved. So this is hopeless because they're just not made that way. That's not their personality. Well, in God's scheme of things, does personality matter? No. <laughs> we need to change. We need to change in conformity to what He would have us to do and love sacrificially. He goes on, there's not anything about the covenantal bond of marriage where for better or for worse, you've committed to this person until death parts you and then showing grace to them in their weakness rather than insisting, well, because this is my love language, this must be met for me. Or it could be, I'm just not good at the thing my spouse needs and there's a sense of hope. So you're not good at it. So you just, you feel hopeless because you don't feel like you can love your spouse because you're not good at that thing or you just don't do it naturally. Well, you know, honestly, and I skipped this somewhere in there, but if we were to do it naturally, what comes natural to us in our sin nature and in our flesh? Being selfish. So nothing's going to be naturally. We're not going to naturally do things sacrificial. That's why it's, being, that's why it's sacrificial love, because we're sacrificing. So we're not going to do it naturally. Whereas Christ, through the gospel, can both transform me to better love than I did before, it also is a focus upon giving graciously, but also Christ can, through the gospel, give me grace if I don't think my yearnings in marriage are perfectly being met by my sinful, fallible, fallible spouse, I can have my ultimate need met in Christ. So essentially what he's saying is, scripturally, we can have our needs met by God, whether our spouse is loving us like they should or not. Um, now, as I said, Chapman writes a lot of sentences that sound pretty good. Uh, he writes some sentences that are spot-on true, uh, as is the case that's the same case with these other authors, um, you know, his needs, her needs, or boundaries, or whatever. They hit the nail on the head once in a while, but the overall picture doesn't work. Um, and sometimes these things are very subtle. Sometimes if we're not thinking biblically and really studying what they're saying and thinking it through rationally and with a biblical lens, we're not going to catch it a lot of times. Uh, so we need to be mindful that sometimes these things are subtle. So we need to be biblically discerning all the time and being careful about the stuff that comes at us that we're not expecting. I mean, you know, if we pick up the five love languages and nobody at Grace Community Church would ever recommend that we read this book, you know what I mean? If that's the case. I'm not saying that's the case. But if that were the case, and it probably is, that, uh, you know, and you say, okay, I'm going to read this book anyway, well, then you're probably thinking, well, there's probably something wrong with this book, right? But there's going to be the case where your friend says, I read this book and it's really good. It's really good. It really helped our marriage. Well, if you don't know where that person is coming from, or even if you do and they've been deceived and they missed it, you know, you're very likely going to miss it, or we are very likely to miss it, right? If it's recommended to us by someone we trust. So we need to be mindful all the time. Um, and in my case, I would rather not waste my energy weeding through resources that might be uh, they might have an ounce of good, but I have to shovel through pounds of empty words and sift through statements that sound good but aren't quite biblical. Uh, so carefully choosing resources that have been evaluated by others we can trust is a better use or stewardship of our energies. So essentially, you know, that's what we're talking about here is we, we can read these resources. There might be good things to get out of them. But if you're having to spend so much mental energy deciphering it, it's probably not a good use of your energy probably not good stewardship.
There's better things to spend our time and energy on. Um, so let's pray. Lord, thank you for um, the time that we could look through uh, yet another resource. I pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment. pray that you would help us to encourage one another in your word and encourage one another in growing to be like Christ and in maturity as believers. And um, let's pray that we'd be mindful as we evaluate everything coming at us on um, news and YouTube and Twitter, whatever it is that we are putting before our eyes. Um, pray that we'd be mindful to not put any worthless thing before our eyes, as Psalms tells us, but that we would also be uh, mindful that things come at us when we don't expect it, but that we would be um, considering them according to your word and that we would be putting away uh, the false and that we'd be clinging to the true. Uh, Lord, I pray that you go with us today, that you would bless us this week and enable us to examine our hearts and examine our lives, that we would be putting off sin, that we would be um, clinging to what is good and pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.